you can explore an exclusive collection of case law at Decisis Law Reports. Browse a comprehensive collection of nearly 14,000 reports of Irish legal judgments delivered since 2011. Visit decisis.ie to find out more. Hello and you're very welcome to episode 42 of The Fifth Court, a podcast on legal affairs presented by myself, Peter Leonard Barrister. And myself, Mark Tottenham Barrister and editor of Decisis.ie. Mark, good to see you again and we're in familiar surroundings after our little outing, etc. And uh, it is good to be back. And today we will be joined by two solicitors from the court service. Patricia Hickey is the general solicitor for minors and for adults who need assistance in that regard. And also Gary Lee, who works in the office. He's the senior solicitor in the office and they both work with vulnerable adults and minors and both are actively involved in a new initiative to make the courts more inclusive. And they're going to tell us all about that, Mark, and that's kind of really important. Obviously, there are a lot of people whose whose experience of the court uh, is is not as straightforward as others. If you've got any kind of disability, you know there are, there are a lot of people who just you know don't find it as easy to deal with the court yeah, system, and they're just being a little bit more considerate of those and and making the the necessary adjustments. It's all about access to justice, mm-hmm. and I mean both are passionate about this. Yeah. No, it's really good. Really looking forward to that discussion. But first, we're going to go to three cases that you've identified on the Decisis website. We start with a criminal case where the DPP entered a nolle prosequi in relation to certain charges of indecent assault. She then added charges to the indictment and proceeded with a new prosecution. The accused sought to have the trial stopped by way of judicial review. This is the case of SOC versus Director of Public Prosecutions, and it is a decision of Mr Justice Anthony Barr. That's right. So this is a case where the accused was charged on 151 counts of indecent assault, which all dated back to the period between 1974 and 1983. Now, a trial had started in relation to some of these charges, um, but then the Director of Public Prosecutions entered a nolle prosequi. Now, if the trial reaches its conclusion and you're acquitted, then obviously that's that's it. There's no double jeopardy. The Director can't um, proceed again. Where a nolle prosequi is entered the director can then bring a new trial. And that's what happened in this case. But the director not only proceeded with the trial again, but added new charges to the indictment. Okay, so you can't so, do that. Well, well you, you, you might have thought you can't do that, but that's what she did here. And that's what was challenged. And the court said that in this case, there was no particular uh, prejudice against the accused. So you can revive the original charge and then add on a little bit more? added on charges in relation to another complainant in this case because they were all related um, or, or the, sorry, the offences were related. Okay, and very interesting the development. the was 71 years old, um, in, they, they allowed the... Okay, the okay, very, very interesting. Okay, our second case also concerns a criminal conviction. The details of this case are very disturbing as a mother was given a six and a half year prison sentence for sexual offences against her son when he was a young boy over 20 years earlier. She appealed the severity of the sentence This is the case of the Director of Public Prosecutions versus SH and it's a decision in the Court of Criminal Appeal by Ms. Justice Isabel Kennedy. Yeah, I mean, this is obviously an awful case. But the peculiar thing was not just that it was a sexual offence by a mother against her son, um, dating back obviously a very long time, but some of them 
uh, occurred at a time when he couldn't possibly have remembered them when he was a very small child. So she was the person who had effectively given the evidence against herself. And the the, the sentencing court uh, gave a sentence of six and a half years imprisonment. But in the in the overall circumstances, the, the court said that that was too much, particularly in terms in relation to some of the cooperation that she had given. So they quashed the sentences and resentenced her to three years for the earlier offending um, and three and a half years for the remainder. So it was a total sentence of six and a half years, but they suspended the last 18 months. Okay. So okay. five years we'd spent in All right. Prison. Finally, we look at a case where a prisoner was on hunger strike. The governor of the prison applied to the court for directions as to whether they were obliged to force feed this individual. The question was whether the prisoner's right to self-determination superseded the prison's duty towards him. This is the case of the governor of ex-prison versus BK, uh, and it's a High Court decision of Ms. Justice Tara Burns. I think, in fact, it's Mr. Justice Paul Burns. Who Paul gave Burns, this sorry. Tara, yeah, okay, sorry, I beg your pardon. Um, I was giving it to Tara. Obviously, it's Paul Burns. Apologies. Um, yeah, this is, uh, I mean, uh, obviously the, the issue of hunger striking is once, you know, very, very prominent in, in, in our history. And the, the issue obviously arises as to in what circumstances should the prison authorities step in to save the life of somebody who's on a hunger strike? And so here they have somebody who's on a hunger strike, presumably weakening. Um, and the governor of the prison sought a direction from the court. Are we obliged to force feed them? Are we obliged to try and keep the um, prisoner alive? And um, and what the court held was that where the prisoner had the mental capacity to make the decision to refuse food, to, chose to be on hunger strike, that then the governor of the prison was not obliged to intervene. Very interesting decision there. Okay, back shortly with solicitors Patricia Hickey and Gary Lee from the court service. Silence in the fifth court. So we are delighted to be joined in the studio today by Patricia Hickey and Gary Lee, who are both solicitors working in the court service. And they particularly want to talk to us about the work of the inclusion group, which is a group within the court service. But I think before we do that, we'll introduce them and their respective roles, and then we'll discuss the the live issues that we're we're going to, to come to. So, Patricia... You are the general solicitor in the Office of Wards of Court with particular responsibility for minors. Have I got your title right or is that slightly yes. mangled? <laughs> yes, you do, Mark. It's an unusual role. It's a specialised role and mm. it's the President of the High Court appoints the general solicitor. There have been yeah. many general solicitors before me since 1969. But the main role for myself is that I'm like a committee of last resort. Mm. So if you bring somebody into wardship, adults or minors, and if there's a family member that's not available or there's a conflict, the president will appoint me as the committee for that purpose. Right. And then I have an office of 27 staff that assist me in that role. So basically, if a child needs to be made a ward of court, this presumably is where the child not only lacks legal capacity in terms of being a child, but actually has certain mental health issues. Yes. Um, then if there's no family member available then the last resort, as you say, is to appoint a general solicitor and that's yourself. That's myself, yes. And and you have two types. You have your adults, which is the main mm. basis of wardship. You do have mm. minors mm. and there is a need to be met if somebody's yep. coming into wardship, whether yep. it's an adult or a child. And very often when adults go into wardship, it's because there's a property issue or a financial issue 
Um, does that apply with children or is it more when there's kind of emergency health uh, medical issues and that kind well, of thing? The whole logic here, Mark, is that it's all changed. Um, Preston Kelly came in 2016 yeah. and previous to his appointment, it was properties, financial estates. Mm. You could have a minor who's orphaned. But since 2016, President Kelly brought in the inherent jurisdiction application. So now what happens in wardship for adults and children, you can have cases with anorexia, mental health, detention, deprivation of liberty. So across the board now, we have widened the criteria for wardship and the necessity for same. That mm. will reduce with time because the new Assistant Decision Making Capacity Act 2015 will Wardship will be gone in about three years for adults only, yeah. but will remain there for for the minors, for children. So the same issues that the minors have will continue and wardship will continue and my role will continue for the minors. So, so previously when you wanted to, uh, when an adult was to be made a ward of court, the application was to the High Court. And am I right that under the new Act that an application can be made to the Circuit Court for the equivalent, the protection, the yes. equivalent protection. Yes. but for children, for, uh, for, for minors, that remains with the High Court. Correct. See, that and so you, your role will effectively remain the same. It will. It'll be much reduced, obviously, yeah. because we won't have to deal uh, with the adult cases, but sure. the minors will continue. Yeah. Patricia, can I come in here? Because I, I don't know a lot about wardship. I probably should do, but I don't. And uh, will, you, will you give me sort of an example, you know, a case study of how your office gets involved, a, a, a sort of circumstances where you'd be called upon by the High Court to serve as the committee yeah. and, and just the issues and the decision-making you then have to make. Yes, and, and what I'll do is I'll give you a quick synopsis of the type of work we do and then I'll give you a couple of examples of particular cases. Wonderful. So you would have, the, the normal case would be perhaps a parent in a nursing home and the family can't apply for fair deal, whether they have a farm or there's an issue. So that adult is brought into wardship, usually on petition by either the family or the HSC, if they had to be moved from a hospital bed to a nursing home. And that would be standard. And we do a fair deal application. We might lease a farm. We might let a pub. We might sell a house. That's the normal everyday wardship. For children, there are many reasons why a child or a minor would come into wardship. We'd have cases and, and many of them were there were failings by the state. So as I would be appointed as committee for that child to prosecute and issue proceedings. Or there might be other cases where, as I said earlier, two parents have died. There was no will. There's nobody to take out an administration. The child needs to be protected. But once they turn 18, my role ceases. Sure. And there'll be other minors where they may be suffering from a disability, may have a mental disorder, and they may require then to continue into wardship for adult. And so just when you say that failings by the state, are you basically talking about cases like say, medical negligence actions, that kind of thing. Do, I mean, yeah. can, can you not simply bring it under the next friend procedure? Do you need to actually have a committee in yeah, place? It's, it's unusual. It's not necessarily medical negligence, Mark. It mm. would be more cases where the state have failed children. Mm. And we would so have judicial many review cases. Of, uh, of, of a particular institution. Yeah, the, the famous right. case that I suppose I would have dealt with would be the Grace case. That would be an example where Grace was brought onto the protection of wardship. She had a committee appointed um, it was more appropriate that my office would act and we went ahead and took um, proceedings on behalf of Grace in that case and also attended the Commission for Inquiry. So that would be a particular specialised case. Not all cases are like that, but that'd be a sample of the type of case that we would have to take. Is it very emotionally heavy work, Patricia? Well, that brings me on to the next type of case. It most certainly is. And, and at the end, I know you'll ask me about a book and I will mention a book probably to you, Peter. Yeah, yeah, but, that's okay. But for that, we have anorexic cases. Yes. We have sexual abuse cases. We have mental disorder, deprivation of liberty. Nearly every single one of those cases, pull at your heartstrings. Um, 
you learn to deal with it. You learn nine to five, you deal with your work and you try not to bring it home. But obviously, if there are other cases similar to your own family circumstances, it is so emotional. Gary knows at this stage he's with me for a year and Gary has seen me coming in, fluttering the eyes going, I'm not going to cry about this one today. And it is really, really hard and really, really emotional. And then you have the other emotion of dealing with families that are distressed. You have parents, you have siblings, you have children, and they might necessarily agree with the proposals I'm placing towards the president for his consent. They might be strongly adverse. The simple example would be I make an application to move a parent to a nursing home against the wishes of the children who want the, the parent to remain at home. It is not possible for them to remain at home. I have to make that decision. And it's a difficult decision. Nobody wants to put the parent into a home. Yeah. I'll go back to the other cases, uh, Peter and Mark, the, the difficult anorexic cases, the difficult cases for deprivation of liberty. We have a number of cases, and Gary has them as well, where we have adult and children wards in England because there are no suitable facilities here to protect them. Right. and to provide the therapeutic services they need. So they have to be transported over to another country for that. That's very, very difficult to deal with. Yes, I'd imagine. Can mm. I just ask you, Patricia, and we have, and you've mentioned Gary a couple of times, and he's waiting patiently. Gary, <laughs> we're going to bring you in. We're going to bring you in in a few minutes. Just you yourself, you were in private practice before you became the, the wonderful public servant that you yeah. now are. So why did you give up the world of private practice to come in and be a public servant and work? It's a very important area, challenging area. Yeah. Why give up the private practice? It's funny, I didn't, even to go back further than that, I didn't actually intend to be a lawyer. I was going to be an accountant. So I did commerce. God and I was offered law and I stuck with the commerce. But I am so happy now that I became a lawyer because I love what I do, protecting people. So when I was in private practice, I had to work for my brother in a family firm. So we shall say no more. An okay. excellent brother and an so excellent no wonder you're sister. running for the hills. Yeah, <laughs> fair enough. I much prefer public service. Okay, and Gary, listen, you're very welcome to the show, Gary Lee. And you work in the office. You're the senior solicitor in, in the office with Patricia here. Again, you know, very interesting work, challenging work. How do you feel about it? Well, it's, it's great. And you can hear the passion that uh, Patricia has there for, for her job. Um, and really, it, uh, I think it's a, it's a privilege to be going in uh, to to work every day to serve uh, people and some of the most vulnerable people in our society. I suppose uh, we're lucky as well in that we've a, there's a very good team there. Mary Claire Butler, um, who's the the deputy general solicitor, and there's a, a team of another there's eight other uh, solicitors uh, as well, and we're supported uh, by some excellent uh, support staff. Okay, let's go back into your background. You have a very interesting background. You've worked in sort of social service type law related matters. That's uh, I know you operated out in Ballymun for a while, but you just give us a background to your career. That's right. Well, um, I, I worked for a number of, of uh, private firms uh, for a few years. Um, I set up my own uh, practice, did that for about, for about 10 years. And then about 12 years ago, I decided that I'd like to specialise in disability law. Um, I'd been chairing mental health tribunals for about four or five years at that stage. So I decided this is what I really wanted to pursue and this is what I, what I wanted to get into. So I ended up working for a national disability organisation as their solicitor. And I must say it was a, an eye-opening experience and it was a hugely enriching experience. And from there, I, I went out to uh, Ballymun and uh, I was the managing solicitor of the community law centre in Ballymun for several years. OK, t- tell us about that. I'm fascinated by that. So what is a community okay. law centre and give us the, the context in Ballymun? OK, well, Ballymun is a, it's a, it's a socio-economically deprived uh, area and uh, there's about 25,000 people live in Ballymun. 
Um, and before uh, Ballymun Community Law Centre, which is a charity, opened its doors, there were no solicitors at all in Ballymun. When you think about that and you think about the importance and the important role that solicitors play in terms no of access private to justice. There were no none private solicitors. None at all? None. No, no name there were plates no private, anywhere? None. There was, okay, there, wow. there was none before, before the law centre opened its doors. And, <clears> you, you know, a lot of times you're dealing with, again, very, very vulnerable people, people that, people that actually need the law on their side. A lot of times they might have, you know, state or state agencies in their, in their crosshairs and they'd, they, they'd know where to turn or, or, no one, or know where to go. They didn't have, initially, they didn't really know. And I think a lot of people would have seen and still do really see the law as something that's used against them mm-hmm. rather than something that can be used for them. Um, so we always just say in the, in, in, in the community law centre we do is that the most important thing is actually informing people yeah. and telling people about the law and telling people about, about their rights. The extraordinary thing is there have been so many housing cases over the years that you would have thought that, that those issues must arise in the less well-off parts of our cities, the, the, the housing provision, that kind of thing. So I'm amazed there wasn't some solicitor looking for that work. Yeah, and uh, you, you know, you mentioned housing there. Um, the, the Legal Aid Board traditionally hasn't taken on um, mm. property-related matters. So there was a, a lacuna there, and that's one, one of the reasons that the, that the law centre was, was set up. But you, you have people in absolute you know, dire accommodation settings um, and you know, being evicted illegally, mm. um, and they've nowhere to, nowhere to turn mm. um, until the law, the, the law centre opened, uh, opened its doors. And what year was that? 20 years, 21 years ago 21 now. 21 years. Yeah, yeah. Um, but since then, I'm, I'm, I'm glad to say there's, um, there's two other, uh, there's two private firms of solicitors have actually opened their doors. So um, I know some people might, might see, you know, community law centres maybe as being a threat, you know, of, you know giving free um, legal services out, but it's not really like that at all. Well, certainly uh, if nobody else is providing the service, they're uh, really... Isn't it, would exactly. it be a terrible thing that people who need representation get representation? Well, this is, this is it. <laughs> this is it. And I must say as well, and we're talking about solicitors and solicitors' involvement in, in the community law centres, but uh, we had and still, I mean, still associated with, with the law centre and we've huge support from, from the bar um, mm. uh, as well. Yes. So a panel of, of 16 wonderful and wonderfully dedicated counsel uh, mm. that, that, that assist us. And it's often amazing that these are, a lot of times it's, it's, the, it's the, the top counsel that are, you know, at, at the, at, at, you know, really, the really good ones that actually volunteer their yeah, services for, for, yeah, for, for that's, free. That, that, no, that's, that's really good. Yeah. That's really good. Gary, you're very much involved in the Law Society as well. We're going to come to inclusion, which is really the, the primary topic that you guys want to discuss here today. But how does the Law Society deal with, let's say, people like yourself, and then we have these skyscrapers along the quays where all the corporate lawyers are. I mean, you're all solicitors and you're all, you all have the one governing body. Does the Law Society make provision for people like yourself Providing services on the fringe, if that's not an incorrect way of describing things. Well, I, I can I can say that the the, the law society actually sponsors Ballymun Community Law Centre. They um, uh, they facilitate part of the of the practicing certificate fee. Um, there's there, there's a box on the application form that you can tick uh, to give money to uh, to the community law centres. Um, so we're we're hugely grateful uh, to 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 the law society. That's a practical thing that's yes. uh, that, that's done. Um, and certainly colleagues are, are extremely uh, supportive. A lot of times in the community law centre, you know, we just didn't have the resources to, to deal with all the cases that, that would come through the door. Um, so uh, we, we would partner up with, 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 with law firms or give cases over to, to, uh, to, to law firms. 
So uh, there's been huge support there from 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 colleagues um, over the years. Obviously, what you're here today to talk about is the issue of inclusion. And I suppose if you can start by telling us what is the inclusion group in the Law Society? What originally happened, we had Tom Ward, the Assistant Secretary, and we had Denise Cole, the HR. We had mm. two separate groups set up, but it was just we were trying to grapple with it. So on the group I was on was Denise Cole's group, and that's where there was only eight or ten of us. And we were trying to look at what we could do as individuals to bring a better quality service to court users and to staff. So what is the particular problem you're looking to address? I mean, is there something that you see as somebody within the court service that isn't being provided that should be provided? Absolutely. And this this is going on a long, Mm. long time where the two groups have come together and we're trying to identify the type of service we're talking about is neurodiversity, persons with physical disability, persons with intellectual disability, hearing everything that we can think of Everybody focuses on the buildings. Everybody thinks, oh, everybody needs, we need wheelchair access, we need gender toilets neutral. But there's more than that. Hmm. We have to expand out. So just interesting, um, before we come in, myself and Gary received an email from one of the members on the group, Annika, and she is reaching out for neurodiversity. She's reached a number of charities already to try and have them come in and talk to us, to explain to us. There was one section on dyslexia, there was another section on autism. So we are trying to widen that out. But we're also trying, it starts with ourselves first, trying to widen our own minds to, to, hmm. to for, first of all, acceptance, um, education, everything we need before we can put that out there. And is this related to the change in decision-making legislation? That there would be people who previously would be treated effectively, would go down the wards of court route, where now you're sort of saying, well, they may have a learning disability or something like that, where they wouldn't be comfortable acting for themselves. But yeah. now there, there, there is the facility whereby they can represent them. It, it's they even bigger than that. Right. And, and Gary will deal with that. Mm. It's much, much wider. Mm. It's every court user. It's not just okay. vulnerable wards of court. Mm. It's, it's everyone. And if Gary's going to bring you through of exactly what steps we've taken and what we hope sure. to do yeah, in the future. Yeah, I mean, society, you know, when you think about it, society itself is not just one big homogenous group, you know. Um, where it's made up of people from from various different uh, backgrounds, ages, um, abilities, and 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 so on. Um, uh, really, that diversity is what makes us human. It was, mm. It's what makes sure. us interesting. Yeah. It what ma- it, it's what makes um, you know, your podcast interesting because everybody has a different story coming uh, mm. uh, uh, coming here. So um, so we're looking. So it's really it's it's beyond just maybe one group. Of, you know, people with disabilities. It, it's 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 all you know. It's all people. And, and and how can how can we make the the court service, um, I suppose more more user mm. user friendly? Um, can I jump in? Sorry, I'm yeah. a great man for the, the yeah, practical yeah. example. Gary, will you, will you tell me, let's say, an issue that arose, and you said, "Oh, this individual has had a difficulty accessing the courts or doing whatever they need to do in the courts, and we need to change a policy, a direction, a building, a ramp, whatever it is." in order to facilitate that person. Will you just give us a practical example? Yeah, well, I think a, a lot of times people will, when they're interacting with any officialdom, might be, you know, we're all, we, we can all get a little bit flustered when mm. when, 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 when that happens. But there's, um, it, it, it's, it can be especially pronounced uh, if you have autism or if you have an intellectual disability. Mm. Um, so if you're, if you're just rocking up and you have a query about maybe some some element of of the law and you go into uh one of the one of the court offices if you have so there there's this thing called a jam card just a minute card 
Um, it's a card that um, you can show if you have if you have autism, if you have uh, if you have an intellectual disability, and immediately the court service member will rec- will recognise that card and yeah. will understand. Look, this person needs a little bit more time, yeah, very good, a yeah. little bit more, um, a little bit more patience when 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 we're dealing with this and. Um, so that's a need that was identified there. Um, and the, the training for that was actually voluntary, but I, I think there was, there was something like 80% of, of court service staff actually volunteered mm-hmm. to do that. Could be, it could be higher now at, at, at this stage. So there's this, this huge sort of buy-in um, amongst, uh, amongst the, the court service staff for that. Um, there's also, um, when you come to court, um, again, you know, you might know your way around. You might never have been in a court uh, before. So you may not have a disability, you may not be from any particular group, uh, but you're vulnerable because mm. you're a court, you're, you're coming in. We now have a 360 degree virtual tour of the courts. Mm. So you can, you can sit at home um, and you can, you can look and you can, you can have a look inside the courtroom. You can, you can navigate your way, you can weigh in because it can be very confusing. At, at, Familiarisation. At yes, Famili- yeah. f- Familiarise yourself uh, great, before Gary, yeah. you go in. And so, so these are things that are being done now. Um, and obviously, there's, there's the physical access to buildings, and any new buildings uh, will be, you know, they, they will be wheelchair friendly. Mm. It's difficulties, obviously, with older and, and, and listed buildings, um, but um, there'll obviously be concentration in terms in terms of staff and staff training. I think from a from a practical point of view, um, you know, the court service is about access to justices. Mm. It is about yeah. facilitating people and court users. And when we talk about court users, we're not just talking about parties to actions mm. uh, or accused persons in criminal cases. We're talking about everybody that including, interacts with, including yourselves, yeah, yeah. as, yeah. as, 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 as course, barristers, you know. Patricia, um, Patricia, can we bring you back in? So yeah. this committee, where do you want to go with this committee? What, what's what's the end game? Well, I'm just even going to give you another example. Um, during COVID, you know that everybody scrambled to try and have computers and all. They immediately did remote access. And mm-hmm. I have to say that that is a fantastic facility. You now have persons who are in detention centres who can now come online. Yeah. You now have prison officers that don't necessarily have to come to court as much. That has opened up a whole area of access and will continue to roll out. So that's really good. And does that mean that, say, people, the kind of people you're talking about who need assistance can sort of, it, they might be more comfortable accessing the courts remotely than necessarily coming into the courts? That, that it gives more flexibility yeah. to you, certain you think, people. And we'll, if we even mm. take it back to the wards, mm. to the General yeah. Sisters Office, we have wards nationwide, the high courts in Dublin. So we used to have a case where somebody would have to travel up by the train in the morning, would wait around all day. They'd have two carers with them. Yeah. Now, all that can be done remotely. We have um, wards that are in the central mental hospital. They can now access and hear everything that's going on. They can have their voice heard. They can talk directly mm-hmm. to the judge. It is not as overwhelming as a person walking into the court. They can still come in physically if they wish because it's both remote and physical. But that has been a massive move in, as we say about inclusion, you're now including people all around the country that they can access their justice. Sorry, Mark, can I just add yeah, one sure yep. yearning to get in here? The, the elephant in the room, if you're talking about inclusion, and as Gary has pointed out, we're all stakeholders. We all belong. We all have an interest in this. Yeah. What about the legal personnel, solicitors, barristers, judges? Have they any improvement to make in order to facilitate inclusion? I think we all have a responsibility. Uh, in in relation to that, I think particularly um, solicitors being, you know, quite often the first point of contact uh, uh, for people. 
And uh, I'm glad to say that in our profession, there's been hugely positive steps taken uh, over the over the past uh, few years around this whole area and 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 around um, trying to to facilitate uh, those who are you know the most most vulnerable to facilitate access to justice. It might be you know recognizing perhaps that your your client is a is a wheelchair user and maybe contacting the courts in advance to say, look, can, can we park around the back? You know. We, we, because um, a client has uh, has, a, has a power chair and needs to access the the, the course that way, so there are, there are, there are practical things that uh, that that practitioners do. The the, the judiciary, I, I must say, we have obviously worked very closely with with the, with the president of the high court and the the two uh, high court judges that uh, that are uh, assigned to the wardship courts, and they have been absolutely fantastic. Uh, in terms of of, of facilitating uh, people, and as, as Patricia was saying, in terms of of, of hearing their voice, and can I ask? I mean, something that always interests me. You know, when when we're looking at kind of um, these kind of changes, have you looked across kind of Europe or other countries and found a country that really has best practice in this area? You know, where the courts are properly inclusive. I mean, is there? I mean, generally people cite Scandinavian countries. But I'm just wondering if if there's anywhere else that could be so, suggested. Yeah. So, so, so generally, it is a work in in progress. Uh, we're we're in the early um, uh, stages of it at the moment. We have our legal obligations, obviously, you know, under public sector duty and the UN Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities and the Disability Act, and and so on. Uh, but certainly, it's um, uh, the, the the court service wants to go above and beyond those legal obligations. So we are in the process of of looking at at other jurisdictions and seeing what works in, in other jurisdictions. And there are areas in the UK, for for example, um, Her Majesty's uh, court courts and tribunal services. His, his, services, I think his Majesty's, <laughs> indeed. Thanks, thanks for correcting me on that, Mark. I'm not I'm, I'm not up to speed with British royalty these days. It's not, it's not the first thing that comes to my head. But they certainly have had um, some, uh, you know, some very innovative approaches mm. uh, that I think we can yeah. certainly learn from. Uh, British Columbia as well is actually another jurisdiction, uh, again, that I think we will be borrowing heavily from hopefully in, in, in the future. Okay. But well, folks, the, the enthusiasm for this is, is very apparent for the pair of you. It's wonderful work. It really is wonderful work and we Thank wish you. you well in it and we'll all benefit from it. Yes. I mean, it's, it's so important. Before we go, Patricia, yeah, you, you mentioned earlier, you have a, you have a book for us, a book I hope. Or a book, and, and, whatever and, you'd like and, to say. And a movie, a movie as well, hopefully. I've I want no to hear movie. it all. No, I've no And movie. Gary will be asking Gary as well. Do you want to, do you want to tell us about a book that you might yeah, want to Yeah, it's funny because I had listened to some of your podcasts before and it was like, you always ask for a legal book. So I was going, yeah, I can quote Amory O'Neill's wardship book, but a wardship's starting to disappear. So I was thinking, I think I'll go different. So because, and I said it already, and it's quite emotional, when we have young male, female persons that have anorexia or are self-harming, and we have to bring their voice to the court, that is really difficult. And we've had a number of wards who have been in England in both public and private. And I've I've went over the last few years to visit them. And one of them was the Ellen Mead Centre. And two ladies that I had there, I visited them I got their views. I talked to them. I wasn't an expert at the very beginning, but by now I am. So The Opposite of Butterfly Hunting by Ivana Lynch is a book that I read in the last couple of years. And it's, she had anorexia. She was actually Luna Lovegood from Harry Potter. Harry Potter. Yeah. Yeah, 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 I wanted to say Harry Potter, my favourite <laughs> books, but I thought it wasn't appropriate. Well, I thought okay. it wanted to be a bit more intellectual, but I do love Harry <laughs> Potter. That's all right. But um, yes, yeah, so and, and she gives it from her perspective. It's a very moving book. She talks about her relationship with her mother, her, her family. She talks about how she viewed the UK institution and it's not named. But when you see it from the patient's point of view, 
okay. or the relevant person's point of view. It's very different from solicitors, judges, barristers. Maybe social workers are more aligned to their views and, and, and getting that voice across. And it takes a very strong person and, and I suppose we are talking about ourselves here when we're saying that in the office, to be able to get that voice, to get that voice heard because the voice is so meek, the voice is so quiet and is so beaten down by, by all the therapies and all the work. And when you read that book, you get it from their perspective and it does help you bring a better voice to the okay, court. So I'd recommend is she talking it. about courts specifically or about She's general talking about herself. She's Sounds. talking about her whole journey. Right. At one stage in the book, she was... Um, going for the role in mm. Harry Potter and she had to bring weighing scales with her right. so that she would be permitted. She had hidden it for an awful long time and this is another thing that the book brings up with social media. It was leaked to the social media. Her whole life was nearly over for her because her personal life was out there and then it was all over the papers. So it is definitely a book, I can nearly get in goosebumps when I talk about it because it's a book that covers vulnerable teenagers, vulnerable adults. We know in the media the way it is at the moment. Yes. It is, it is an, oh, I think good. it's a very, very good, good book. No, great, great recommendation, Patricia. Thank and you. Gary? Before I launch into this, I just want to say what a great service uh, you two guys are doing. Uh, oh, wow. with this podcast. Oh, you know, I have, I have to say it. I'm a big, Mark, big, stop blushing there. I'm a, big fan, I'm a big fan of yours and it's a, it's a wonderful service, not only to the legal community, but, but beyond it. And I just, uh, just wanted to, to, to mention that. Well, we always to, welcome to kind that. words, don't we, Mark? Absolutely. <laughs> um, I've a Netflix uh, documentary, um, an Oscar nominated uh, Netflix documentary uh, called uh, Crip Camp. Um, with a C or a K? With a, with a C, yeah, okay. yeah. So it's about uh, teenagers with uh, disabilities um, who came, went on a summer camp back in uh, 1970 or seven, 71. They'd never been outside of, some of them had never been outside of an institution before. Um, and uh, they, they came to this summer camp and they had a whale of a time. The, the, the original footage is there. There was somebody actually going around filling them at, at, at the time. So, so it's part of the, of, of, of the documentary. And these teenagers formed a bond uh, together, teenagers. And, and, and when they became young adults, they kept the contact up. And they said, look, we're, we're, we're not going to take, you know, just being locked up in an institution or, and, and keys thrown away. We're, we're, we're going to do something. We, we want to live uh, live our lives. We want to live independent uh, lives. So they they campaigned, um, and they eventually uh, got the um, Americans with Disabilities Act uh, passed through the uh, the, the first uh, Bush administration. And the documentary itself uh, mainly features uh, Judy Human, um, who uh, went on actually to become um, an assistant secretary of uh, education uh, under the Clinton administration, and then a special um, presidential advisor. Um, to, uh, to 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 Barack Obama, um, and I had had the absolute privilege of meeting her a, a few years ago and 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 having a long uh, chat with her. Unfortunately, she she died back in in March. Okay. The other one I want to 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 say is a play very quickly, okay. um, and it's No Magic Pill, and it's a play about uh, the early years of uh, the I suppose the the foremost Irish uh, disability activist, uh, the late uh, Martin uh, Nocton. Um, and it's it's brilliant. Um, and it was it was out about two years ago. Christine O'Reilly um, wrote it, uh, and it was directed by uh, P- Peter Cairns. Uh, hopefully, it'll be 
back out there back again, again at some stage. stage. Well, that's I would recommend anyone to play. Anyone yeah. Love that. Love that. No, no magic pill. Okay, Gary, thank you very much. Okay, and Patricia. So can I say a huge thank you to Patricia Hickey. Thank you very uh, much. General Solicitor with the Court Service and Gary, who also works in the same office. Gary Lee, who's doing wonderful work in inclusion and improving the court services for us all. Thank you so much for coming in and being guests on the Fifth Court today. The Fifth Court will adjourn until next week. That's all from this edition of The Fifth Court. We hope you have enjoyed it. We have to say a huge thank you to our guests, Solicitors General from the Court Service, Patricia Hickey and Gary Lee, for coming into us and telling us about the great work they have been doing, making the courts of the land more inclusive and more accessible to people who have the right to go to court and have difficulties in that regard. Exactly, yeah. Very useful service. No, it's really good and really, really important. And they explained it brilliantly, I thought. It was a really good episode. Before we go, I'd like to say a big thank you to our producer, Conal O'Moroyne, and also to the Dublin South podcast studios and the great Lee Brennan for the wonderful work in preparing this show. So from me, Peter Leonard. And myself, Mark Tottenham. Thank you for listening and we'll see you soon in the Fifth Court. Never miss a vital Irish legal judgment. Check out Decisis Law Reports, where you'll find a fully indexed collection of all Irish judgments delivered since 2011. Visit decisis.ie to find out more.